Okay, we are going to have a TMT, and I'm super excited about uh, the TMT today. Always excited about the TMT, but um, one of the things that I don't think we do enough here at Life Church is sharing what the Lord is doing in our lives. And this, you know, there's a scripture that says they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, right? So just, I, I was talking to my girls about this. A testimony is not just the story of how you came to salvation, but it's like anything that might have happened in your week. Like, I saw God move in this way. That's a powerful testimony. And when that happens, the Spirit goes into all of our hearts and encourages us. And here you're going to get to hear from our dear sister, Abby Kate, who, by the way, is heading up all of our efforts with uh, the preschool. So she's doing that. If you need to talk to her about that, that's awesome. But she's going to give us a testimony of something the Lord did in her at camp or through her at camp. And so come on up, Abby Kate. Really excited to hear you share. Abby Kate's also one of our core volunteers. By the way, if, you're, if you have a student who's in sixth grade now, please come talk to Nate. Nate and Rachel are um, our core directors, and we have some amazing volunteers. They're awesome. You don't want your kids to miss out on this. So Abby Kate, take it away. Thank you. So I had the privilege this summer of working at eight different summer camps, and yeah, I saw God do some really awesome things in all of those camps, but I'm going to focus on just one week. Um, and so the story I'm going to share today is from a camp called Royal Family Kids Camp, and that is for foster kids and kids who have been adopted but have a lot of trauma in their past. And so obviously they're coming in with a lot of spe more special needs and need more attention. And um, I got paired with a 10-year-old girl, and she has fetal alcohol syndrome and has a bunch of trauma from an older sister who's also adopted and super aggressive. So that's just to give you a little background on what she was coming in with. And so the first night was really tough. She was really unregulated basically the whole evening. And there was a lot going on, obviously, a lot of new things coming to camp on the first day. And then by bedtime, she was really missing her mom. And so she was crying about that. And it was really rough. And then another little girl in the room was trying to help her. So she would, like, throw her stuffed bunny to her. And it would help for a few minutes. And it was great. And then the little girl who owned the bunny would ask for it back. And then it would get chucked across the room and they'd get mad at each other. And that, like, things like that went on in a cycle for, like, at least an hour. And so finally we had to take them out of the room and get them separated and, like, calm down. And by this time it was, like, 1230 at night. And we had decided that the little girl I was paired with needed to be moved to a different room. And she was not a fan of that at all. So that just led to a lot more struggle and we actually had to restrain her, but thankfully my mom is a counselor, and so she just held her in her arms and saying Jesus loves me to her for like 30 minutes, and even just watching that was amazing, to see God work through that simple little song, like she calmed down, and it was amazing because she hadn't been calm like the whole night, so then finally by like 1.30 in the morning, we had her in her new room and in bed and asleep, so that's just like an example of how a lot of situations went with her, like she was very unregulated most of the time. If something scared her or something didn't go through the way she wanted, then she would get really unregulated really fast. So by the second night, I was with her and, like, with her all the time, even at bedtime. And so I'm getting ready to get her to bed. And it took a lot of convincing to get that process going. But once she started heading that direction, it went so smoothly. And um, she got ready for bed. We read her a few stories, prayed for her, and then she went right to sleep. 
Um, but I want to tell you a little story from one of the stories that we read because we had a really touching moment right there where it was clear that God was working in her life, even in the midst of all the things that were going on. So we were reading a story about a little seed and a little fox, and the little seed lived on a shelf in the farmer's um, shed, and the fox lived in a den, but one night there was a storm and he got scared, so he ends up in the den, in the, or in the farmer's shed, and they become friends, and um, for a long time they're just in the shed, and the story goes on, and they're learning that whole time that the farmer is good, and the farmer is kind, and the farmer is always watching over them, even when they don't know it, and one day the farmer walks in, and he says, I have a wonderful plan for you, and he picks up the little seed, and he takes it outside, and he plants it in the ground, and of course, the little seed is scared because it's dark and it's a new place and there's like no one around and the fox is afraid because he's been left all alone. But they learn through a lot of little things in the story that the farmer is always good and the farmer is always kind and the farmer is always watching over them even when they don't know it. And eventually, the little seed grows into a sprout and then even a tree. And then they really know that God was watching over them the whole time and had a better plan for them. And then... When we got to the last page of the story, this 10-year-old little girl just looked at me and she's like, can I read this page? And I said, yeah, of course. So she reads this page and this is what she read. Little seed liked things to stay the way they were. Little fox was sometimes afraid. But just as they learn to trust the farmer, we can learn to trust God. We do not need to fear. He has a wonderful plan. God loves you and he is kind. And in the end, it really will be okay. Trust this truth in the tough things you face, confusing times in the messy, hard place. God loves you, and he is kind. Remember this always in your heart and your mind. And not only did she read that to herself once, but she asked if she could read it again. So then she read that page again to herself. So that was really touching, because the truth in this part of the story is so good. Like, she had so many hard situations and scary things in her life, but she read to herself more than once that she could trust God in those hard times and yeah, I got really emotional in that moment because I was like, wow, like this is a lot of work, but it's so worth it for this one moment where she's realizing she can trust God. So later that night, I was told that three other staff had been standing outside of her room um, that whole time praying for her as I put her to bed. And so that is just a really good reminder to me of how powerful prayer is. And I hope that's encouraging to you guys for whatever you're praying about. Um, and just like the farmer, God is always good and he's always kind. He's always watching over you even when you don't know it. Thank you, Abby Kate. Praise God. Today's reading is Acts 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why is it that people love money so much? I mean, there's lots of reasons for that, right? Uh, money can and does make our lives easier to some extent, especially if you've struggled financially, you know, like, financial worries are, are tough, really difficult. Um, so it can, it can and does make our lives easier. Uh, like we talked about last week, money can give us the illusion um, that we're kind of invincible, that we can kind of weather any storm in life, that we're ready for whatever life throws at us. Of course, that's just an illusion, but it can make us feel that way. But more than all those things, I think human beings love money because it gives them instant significance and power. I think that's why humans love money. It's the fastest route to it. Have you ever thought about that? If you have money, a lot of money, you have a pass to the front of the line in almost every area in society. You really do. Now, there are some people who are rich and powerful and significant, not because they have money, but because of some talent or skill. You know, our, our movie stars, our professional athletes, uh, musicians, those kinds of people, they, they have something that is very rare that they can do, and that makes them famous, but also rich. But have you ever thought about this? Like, if you just have money, one thing, that's really all you need to be significant and powerful. That's it. You ever looked at some of the pictures of our world's richest people and just think, boy, there's, I, if I met that person on the street, I would not think anything significant about that. You know, they don't have any other special abilities, just they're super, super wealthy. Garrett, can you bring up some of these photos? Uh, this guy, for instance. If you met this guy, you know, on your college campus, some of our college students, you might think, yeah, seems like a nice enough guy wearing his polo. He's got his computer out, maybe a college, maybe a computer nerd. Um, this guy's worth billions and billions of dollars. This is Mark Zuckerberg, powerful and famous. He started Facebook, so he's the reason all our lives are miserable, right? <laughs> he's kind of a big deal now. Once, once a nerd and now kind of a big deal. Or what about this guy? Can you do the next one, Garrett? Oh, I had a different picture of him up. Um, so I had this picture of, of Bill Gates before he became Bill Gates, and he's got like these bulletproof glasses on, you know, just the big, the big weirdo looking glasses, just looks like a total goober. Uh, and now he's worth over $100 billion. 
It's kind of a big deal. Nobody makes fun of him anymore just because he has money. Or how about this last one? Doesn't it look like a guy you just want to, you know, grandpa, you want to go sit by the fire and have him tell you a story, maybe take you out fishing, right? This grandpa's like the fourth wealthiest person in the world. This is Warren Buffett. So therefore, I have seen that, Kirsten. Yes, the richest guy, the, the richest person in the world kind of is fluctuating a lot more recently. But the common denominator for a lot of these guys is that they, they don't really look like much. The one thing that they have in common is they just have a lot of money and therefore they have power and significance. And of course, this phenomenon of money giving instant power and significance is most easily seen when someone gains that overnight, right? With something like winning the lottery. They go from being a total nobody to um, being really popular, famous, having all kinds of people seeking after them, and only one thing changes about them, their net worth, right? They didn't gain any other special skills or abilities or likable traits. They're just their net worth skyrocketed through the roof, and therefore everything about them changes because in our world, that does change everything. It really does change everything which is one of the reasons why money and greed are so dangerous. See, friends, money calls out to you, and it says, come get instant power and influence and significance from me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an easy pass. It's the, it's the guaranteed way. It's the shortest route to power and significance. It says, I'm all you need to get there. And in this world, there's an element of truth to that, isn't there? We look around us, right? It gets you places to have a lot of money. We have to admit, one of the deepest longings of our hearts is for significance. I mean, I think that's part of being made in the image of God, don't you? Like, God has made us to live significant, meaningful lives. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to have an impact. Not everybody wants to be famous and, and super well-known and in the spotlight, but all of us want our lives to have significance, don't we? We want our lives to have meaning, and that's certainly not a bad thing, but as we're going to see in our text today... Our longing for significance can lead us into a certain kind of greed. Of course, we're in a series called Get Out, and we're, we've been, over the summer, tracking two narratives of God with his people as God brings together a group of people for himself in two different places. First of all, in Exodus with the Israelites, and then in the book of Acts with the church. And last week, we looked at Israel's greed and their hoarding of manna in the wilderness. And we talked about how greed is really just a refusal to live dependent on God. It's a lack of trust that God will provide for everything we need. So in particular, we looked at greed fueled by a desire for security, right? I want security. I want to be safe. I want to know that I'm going to have everything that I need. And so we examine the symptoms of that. And if we ever thought that the Israelites were the only ones with problems... We come to our text today in Acts, and the passage reminds us of the same sin struggles that Israel struggled with, the early church struggled with, and the same sin struggles that the early church struggled with, we still have to deal with today, right? Same kinds of things. As C.S. Lewis puts it, we're prone to a chronological snobbery. So looking down on past generations thinking, oh my word, they were so primitive, and oh my word, they, they were so weak, and, and they just couldn't get their act together. Well, the chances are if we were put in the exact same circumstances— we wouldn't pass the test either. We would do as miserably as they did. So we see the church in this passage dealing with greed 
again, but the motivation here for this greed seems different from last week. This isn't greed motivated by security. This is greed motivated by significance. And just like we did last week, we're going to look at some of the symptoms of this kind of greed fueled by significance and how we can be moving away from it. So I have three symptoms that we're going to look at. And again, I would invite you, as we go through some of these symptoms, be asking yourself, is this me? Do I see this in myself? Be asking the Holy Spirit, will you illuminate the eyes of my heart to show me where this has started to creep in? Because one of the unfortunate, awful things about greed is that it cloaks itself. It has a built-in cloaking device. It doesn't allow us to see this in ourselves. So one of the reasons in Luke 12, Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard for all kinds of greed. There's many kinds, and you're not going to see them coming. That's what he's saying. Watch out. When Jesus says that himself, you know you should watch out. Like this is something that could easily plague you. So here we go. There's three symptoms I want to look at and then the cure. Symptom number one of greed fueled by significance is comparison. You know, remember that greed is rooted in pride. So pride is sort of the the big vice, the the main vice beneath all vices, the root of the vices. And C.S. Lewis says, by nature, pride is competitive. So it's always trying to be better than other people. It's always comparing itself to other people, hoping to look better than everybody else. That's what pride is. And you might say, well, Pastor Dave, I don't see any comparing in this passage. Where's the comparison going on in this passage? Well, I think if we look at the context here, it's more than plausible to see that this type of thing was going on. I mean, look, look back at chapter 4, and there's tons of generosity taking place in the church. So the Christians are selling their possessions, um, giving the money out, distributing it to anybody who had need. And then there's this guy Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, right at the end of chapter 4, and he sells a piece of land and gives all the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. That's how chapter 4 ends, and chapter 5 begins with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think that's an accident. This is what I think happened. Um, I think Ananias and Sapphira were there when Barnabas did his cool gift, when they saw the other believers giving really cool gifts to the church. I think they saw that, and they said, wow, look at Barnabas. You know, obviously the story about Barnabas got recorded, so it must have been some sort of a public thing. And they said, wow, look at that guy. He's so generous. People think a lot of him. People think highly of him. He's influential. He has significance. We want that. We want to be thought of like him. But we don't want to give like he gave, at least not to the extent that he gave. So what about this? And I just picture Ananias and Sapphira having, you know, a sit-down conversation about this where they say, look, we got this piece of land. We could sell it. What if we say we're going to give all the proceeds of the land and then we just don't? Like, let's not and say we did kind of thing, right? Um, what if we just hold back some of the money? Who's ever going to know, right? They'll never know how much we actually got for it. And so that's the plan. They both like it and they agreed to it. But more than likely, their sin started with some sort of comparison. Like, well, this, this is what the godly people are doing. This is what the really influential spiritual people are doing. So we want to be thought of like them. And in our world, comparing is an everyday activity. We already talked about Zuckerberg with Facebook. But this literally, at, there's never been a generation, a time in history where people could compare them, their lives so easily to one another than right now. 
it's detrimental. It's absolutely spiritually detrimental that you, with the click of a button, with the scroll of your thumb, can, can compare your life to thousands of other people in just a matter of hours, right? And that kind of thing is the breeding ground for all sorts of vices, right? For envy, for covetousness, for all kinds of greed, we want the house they have. We want the marriage they have. We want the kids they have. We want the body they have. We want the job they have. We want the success they have, right? We want the vacations that they have. Why do they always seem so happy? It's because they're posting all their highlight reels, right? They don't post all the real stuff going on. But that's the breeding ground for all kinds of greed. And I'm wondering how much of this is going on in your life? How much you're comparing yourself to those around you? I know this is something that I've really struggled with because I'm, I'm an achiever. I'm an Enneagram 3, so I like to keep up with people. I like to kind of, you know, how do you measure how you're doing in life unless you can kind of say, well, I think I'm doing better than maybe some other people. And Jesus has had to remind me many, many times of the last chapter of John. I love this passage. When Peter is comparing himself to the Apostle John. And listen how Jesus handles this. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John describes himself, which I think is pretty cool, was following them. In verse 21, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And maybe you found yourself in that spot where you're like, hey, God, what about them? How come they have it so good? How come they don't have this struggle? How come they don't, how come they get all that great stuff and I'm left with nothing? How come, what about them? And I love Jesus' answer. It's just so classic. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Nothing like Jesus to get right to the point. In other words, stop comparing yourself, Peter. You just have to be faithful to what I've called you to do. You just have to be faithful to what I've called you to do. And that's how the Lord has used that scripture in my life. Dave, what's that to you? You just follow me. You just lock eyes with me and do what I've told you to do. You just be obedient to me. Friends, if we could just stop comparing ourselves with other people who have way different scenarios, way different callings, way different giftings than us, and lock eyes with Jesus and just be obedient to him, literally tons of spiritual vices would be eliminated from our lives. I mean, I'm serious. This is a really, really big problem. So that's the first symptom. If you see a lot of comparison going on in your life, that's the first symptom of this greed that's fueled by significance. But secondly, we see is lying or pretending, which is kind of a type of lying. But Ananias and Sapphira are lying here. They lied about how much they gave from the sale of the proceeds. And it seems like a really silly lie to tell. Peter even kind of calls that out. They don't have to give it to the church. It was at their disposal, right, in the first place. Nobody was putting a gun to their head saying, you got to give this much. And yet they come up with this plan to try to look like they did exactly what Barnabas did. Why? Well, they wanted people to think more highly of them. Clearly, this is something that other spiritually admired people were doing in the church, so Ananias and Sapphira are pretending to be more generous than they really are. This is going on here. They're pretending to be spiritually farther ahead than they really are. And I think this kind of thing still happens in the church all the time. In fact, I think spiritual pretending is one of the things that really keeps the church crippled from the purpose that God has for it. Lying or pretending 
which is a type of lying, is done when you feel like, hey, if I don't put forward a view of myself, a picture of myself that is this way, I'm going to lose cred. I'm going to lose respect. I'm going to lose significance. So therefore, I must always appear this way or that. And greed, fueled by significance, says, look, I love money, but there's other things that I love more than money, and I will pay to get those things. And it says, I love power and significance even more than money, so if I have to, I will pay to get those things. That's what Ananias and Sapphira are doing. Significance and power are important enough for them that they're willing to pay to get it. It reminds us of another guy in the book of Acts, Simon, in Acts chapter 8, who you remember this guy? He saw Peter praying for people and getting the gift of the Holy Spirit, and he said, hey, can you give me that? I'll pay, for, I'll, I'll pay you for it. And Peter turns to him and gets it exactly right. He said, your money perished with you, Simon. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. See, friends, people with greed fueled by the desire for significance, they believe that they can buy power and significance with money. And here's the tough part. In most of the world, they're right. You don't have to look far to find this thing happening, right? In all kinds of governments around the world, in our government, you find people with lots of money get power and influence by using their money, right? That's not uncommon. That's something that happens all the time, but not in the church. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying here by taking this thing so seriously. Like, you do not buy power and significance with money in the church. That does not happen in the church. We get our significance from belonging to Christ. So the person who has a net worth that's in the negatives and the person that has the net worth in the millions, same exact place in the church. We don't honor or respect any person more or less because of how much money they have. God doesn't either. God doesn't either. We get our significance from belonging to Christ. And therefore, here's the cool part. There's no need to pretend. No need for pretending in here. And I've really dreamed of Life Church being this place so free. We sang about it today, right? Who's, who the sun sets free, it's free indeed. So real, so authentic, because we just, we have no need to pretend. We have no need to, we have no pressure to be anything than exactly who we find ourselves to be at that moment. Because here's the deal, friends. When we pretend and when we lie to one another and we put forth a view of ourselves that just isn't accurate, the best possible case, the best possible scenario for us is that we fool one another. That's the best you can do with that, right? Is you might fool one another, but you can never fool God. You can never fool him. All of our motives, all of our intentions, our hearts are laid totally bare before him. He knows absolutely everything about you. So when we lie, when we insist on spiritual pretending, the best we can do is fool one another. And so therefore, a church that says, hey, we're going to refuse spiritual pretending. We're going to bring our most authentic self to the community every single time. That's a church that takes seriously this idea that God sees us. God sees us all the time. So no need to pretend because we can't pretend before him. And he's the one that really matters. And a church that's full of spiritual pretending, they live as if God doesn't see it. Or if he does see it, he's not going to do anything about it. And that's the biggest mistake Ananias and Sapphira make in their planning. They come up with a plan, a lie. They're going to fool the church. This is going to allow them to have their cake and eat it too. So they can keep some of their money that they want. But they can also get 
the power and significance in the church that they think they're going to get from giving this big gift. They're going to be seen as spiritual and generous as Barnabas. Nobody will know, they thought. Nobody's going to know. You ever heard that lie from the evil one? Nobody will find out. They missed something really important. God knew. God saw it. And God acted upon it. Peter was right. You haven't lied to people. You've lied to God. So we must absolutely remember that lying and pretending, it only works on human beings. It never works on God. I'm wondering where you've seen this kind of thing in yourself. Maybe not outright lying, but just pretending, just, just name dropping a little bit, just putting forward a view of yourself that isn't quite accurate. I'll tell you, I face this stuff all the time, especially as your pastor. I want you guys to think really highly of me. I really do. So, like, I'm tempted to say, oh, yeah, you know, if I make this comment here or that comment, they'll see me as stronger than I really am. They'll see me as more spiritual than I really am. They'll see me as more mature than I really am. And at best, I might have fooled you. I might have won your approval. I didn't fool God, and neither can you. That's why pretending and lying in the church, it isn't just evil. It's stupid. It's stupid because we're not getting anywhere. God already knows. He knows everything about us. So that's the second symptom of greed fueled by significance. So we have comparing, we have lying, and then finally, and lastly, I'm calling this public acts of good. So doing all the good things that you do in public for everybody to see, that's the third symptom of greed fueled by significance. So social media makes this a massive temptation, obviously, right? Like you're you're about to do something good, and then you just hear that voice, I should snap a picture. I should post this for everybody to see, right? So that all, I can get tons of likes. And then what's going to happen? Everybody's opinion of you is going to go up. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. But you really have to watch it now. You really have to pay attention to those desires. Because here's the deal, friends. Christians are called to be like sailboats, not like cruise ships. If you ever sailed before, most of the weight of a sailboat is underneath the water where you can't see it. That's what makes it function. Without that weight underneath the water, it'll tip over. Unlike a cruise ship where most of the boat is above the water where you can see it. All the water slides and all the cool stuff. You know, it's, it's all show. It's all, all out front for you to see it. We want to be like sailboats. Most of the people that I've known who've gone deep with God, they have an incredibly large percentage of their life that's below the water, that's out of the line of sight, that's in secret, that's in solitude, just with God where there can be no... False motives, right? They, they're off with the Lord because he sees them. He knows them. That's all they want. And that's how they end up going deep with God because they're with the Lord where only he can see. And that's why Jesus is constantly encouraging us to practice these spiritually charged disciplines like praying and giving and fasting in secret, where only the Father sees us, because he knows how quickly the enemy gets in there and tempts us with these kinds of things, tempts us to do good things in a way that messes us up, where we do it for the approval of other people. He knows how appealing that is to us. There's this old saying that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is the greatest evil. That's exactly what Ananias and Sapphira are doing here. They're doing a good thing, giving to the church, probably some people that are in really severe need, but their giving is entirely selfish. It's entirely selfish. It's entirely motivated by a plan 
to get more significance in the church. We don't see all the things that went on behind the scenes here, but I think it's pretty obvious that there was some sort of a public announcement that went on here, right? Somehow, everybody knew they were going to give all the proceeds away from the sale of this land. My guess is they had made a public announcement in the church service, and everybody had been like, yay, awesome, Ananias and Sapphira, way to go. Thank you, awesome, we're so grateful for your gift. And they felt the applause, and it's like, ah, yes, our plan is working perfectly. But the Holy Spirit made Peter aware of the scheme. And you know the rest of the story. This stunt ends up costing both of them their life. The Holy Spirit said, no, no, no. This will not happen in my church. I'm going to put an end to this right now. Reminder that our sin always, always leads to death. And so I'm wondering, when it comes to the good things the Lord has you doing, what's the percentage in your life? I know that some things are going to be public. Some good things you do are going to be public. Oh, well, that's fine. But is everything good that you're doing public? Are you snapping a picture and posting everything on social media? Because if you are, the chances are high that this is really creeping into your life. There's no secret component to the good things that you're doing. The good news is there's a pretty easy cure. Like I just said, Jesus has some pretty straightforward advice for you. Just if, you're, if you think you might be struggling with this, just try a season where everything's completely secretive. Right? You're giving, you're fasting, you're praying. Just drive it all into secret just before the Father. Don't tell any about it. Don't your, let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then see how that feels. And if it's unchanged, okay, maybe then you don't struggle with it. But if it's like, wow, now I really am not motivated to do this stuff, then you know. Then you know, right? That's what was happening. And I have to tell you, I think that this church is really pretty good about this. Right? So many of you are adamant about your giving being in secret. And I love that. I love that because it shows that you take Jesus' words really seriously and that um, you want to do this just before your Father. By the way, if any of you are giving to try to impress me, you can stop giving altogether because I have no idea what you give. I stopped. I honestly, I, when I became pastor, I said, hey, Charity, I don't want to know about any of that stuff. I don't want it to affect how I pastor you. I want to pastor everybody the same, no matter how much they give. If they don't give a dime or if they give a million dollars, I want to treat them exactly the same. So your giving is between you and the Lord and charity. And she's a really awesome person. But she has to track it for your taxes, right? Somebody's got to track it. But I don't look at it. I don't know anything about how you give. It's between you and the Lord. It's not just spiritually charged activities that you need to be wary of, though. It's other stuff too. You know, you got to ask yourself when it comes to this vice, it's so sneaky, it creeps in. Why, why is it that I buy the things that I buy? You know, is it because of their usefulness to me or is it because, how I, uh, because of how I look when I have this thing or that thing? Why is it that I bought this house rather than that house? Is it because this, is, this it meets the needs of my family and our community or is it because this raises us up in, this, in, the, in the culture and it gives us a greater status? I mean, this is easier than falling off a log, friends. Like, this stuff happens to people all the time. We believe the lie that, like, if I have this stuff, I'm going to look better. It's going to make me worth more. It's going to make me feel better. And it just doesn't. It's just a lie. So these are not, like, one-time questions, unfortunately. Like, I have to ask myself these questions yearly, multiple times. God, would you show me these kinds of things? Would you, would you confront me on these kinds of things? It's not fun. 
but it's really, really important. So comparison, lying, pretending, and then living all of our lives out in public for the approval of others. That's what we're seeing here. Now, it's not super fun to look at the symptoms, but what's the cure, right? This might be what you're asking. Like, okay, most of us are probably seeing some of these things, some of these traits, at least snippets of them in us, but what's the cure? What's the way out of this? What's the cure for this type of greed that's fueled by significance? Well, it's actually pretty simple to understand, but it's really, really hard to do. And it's this secret. Become obsessed with what God thinks of you. That's it. Become obsessed with what God thinks of you. This has been my prayer for the last several months. One of my main prayers has just been like, God, would you just allow me to meditate, to spend 10 minutes a day being obsessed with what you think about me? Because the more you get obsessed with what God thinks about you, the less you're going to be obsessed and preoccupied with what people think about you. The bigger God's opinion of you is, the smaller people's opinion of you will be. And that's where you want to go. Remember that Jesus famously said, my food is to do the will of my Father and accomplish his work. So he's saying, that's what fuels me. He wasn't fueled by a desire for significance. He wasn't fueled by gaining power in the community. He was fueled, he was energized by doing the Father's will, accomplishing his work. And that, friends, is why Jesus was able to humble himself even to the point of death on a cross. You understand that death on a cross wasn't just painful, it was humiliating. It was an accursed death, according to the Jews. To die on a tree was a cursed death. It was the lowest of the low for criminals to die on a cross. And so Jesus allowed himself to go down that path where he wasn't gaining significance and power and wealth. He was losing all of it. He was moving in the direction of poverty, weakness, and then ultimately to death. Why did he allow himself to go down that path? Because he wasn't motivated by those things. He wasn't feeding on those things. That wasn't what was fueling him. So what led him go down to the very bottom, even to death itself, was his obsession with doing the Father's will, accomplishing his work. And that was unfortunately the path the Father had for him to go. And so he's like, okay, not your will, but my will. I'll do it. That's what you want me to do. I'll do it because I'm obsessed with, I feed myself on doing your will and your work. And of course, Jesus didn't stay dead, but three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death for us so that we can finally be freed from greed's awful power. So that's the secret. Become obsessed with what God thinks of you, just like Jesus was. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we want to welcome you into an entirely different community where you do not gain power or significance by money. It's weird, I know. You can't buy your way into anything in here. You come and you receive. That's how you come in. It's really, really opposite. It's really, really different. I know it's weird. But the way you enter the kingdom of God is you just come in with empty hands and open arms and you receive grace, the gift of God, which is Jesus Christ. You have nothing, nothing, nothing to give. And you can come and receive today that free gift of salvation in Jesus. There's going to be people up here to pray with you. We would love to welcome you into this weird, weird community. Everything functions backwards. All right? Now, for the rest of us, I would love to extend the same encouragement as last week. Please take some time this next week or couple of weeks to just ask the Holy Spirit to examine yourself, to say, will you search me? Will you point out these things to me where I've started to slide into thinking 
You know, that scripture that says, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. You know, show me where I've started to believe those lies. Show me where I've started to believe that I get significance and power from having things, from money. Let the Holy Spirit examine you. But then secondly, take this to your Christian community. Like I said, with these vices that cloak themselves, it's really important to say, hey, brother, sister, what do you see in me? And then don't get defensive when they give you an honest answer, right? Yeah, actually, I do think you're struggling with that. And then you're all offended. No, hey, this is no fun to see in ourselves, but it's not any fun to let it grow either. So be thankful if they're willing to tell you the truth and help you to see it. Finally, will you just pray with me this simple prayer? God, help me to be obsessed with what you think of me. Help me to be obsessed with doing your work, accomplishing your will. Help me to receive that word like Jesus said to Peter. What's that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Can we commit as a community to living before his eyes only? To living before an audience of one? That's my prayer for us. Let's ask him for help to do it. Amen. Father, we come to you today and we're grateful for this text. We're grateful for the reminder of how easily we struggle with these things. Sometimes it's really painful and awful to look at ourselves and to be honest about these things. We're so weak and we're so vulnerable to um, running away from you and into things that are going to destroy us. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see, that you would help us to um, become obsessed with what you think of us. And we would live before your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.